Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And our primary text is the verse that Drew quoted just a few moments ago when he quoted from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. But every text in the Bible has a context. It's important that we gain further insight into this one verse by reading what precedes it and a little bit of what succeeds it. So I'm going to begin with verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 10, and I'm going to read it down through verse 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now let us act not act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. May I interrupt myself in this reading and remind you that the Bible says in Romans 15, verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times. What we're going to look at today is a broader description of some of the things that have been said in one verse thus far. Those events are given in detail in the books of Exodus and Numbers to give us an example in a negative way so as not to fall into that kind of lifestyle and follow the practices that are our natural bent to follow rather than to follow the Lord. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with temptation will provide the way of escape also, such you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Last night, there was quite a boxing match that took place in Las Vegas. What was at stake was the retention of the crown for the heavyweight championship in boxing of the whole world, or possibly the regaining of that crown by the challenger who had lost it some months ago when these two same fighters came to fight. I followed it, not pay-per-view, but being on the cheap like I always am, I just got the information as it came in round by round to see how each one of these contestants fared. The challenger, Deontay Wilder, had been the champion. That crown was taken away by the current champion, Tyson Fury. And so these two men went after it. And everything I read this morning when I got up about the fight suggested that it would be a fight for the ages is the way it was described. It was one of the throwback fights. Some people are even saying it's the fight that will save professional boxing because of the fierceness and the tenaciousness that both of these contestants showed. The champion in the 11th round, the bout was only for 12 rounds. In the 11th round, he finally beat his opponent. Wilder was living up to his name. Every round, he got wilder and wilder. <laughs> he fought when the people who were talking about the fight, commenting on it, said, how in the world does he continue to come back and take the kind of hit he took last round that floored him? He was knocked down more than one time. And by the way, the champion in the fourth round, Tyson Fury, was knocked down twice in the same round. What a fight. A fight for the ages. We are in a fight for the ages, for sure. Our struggle is not against an opponent in a boxing match, but it is against a, an opponent, namely Satan. He is described as the adversary of all believers. He has as his goal not just to beat us, but to devour us. And he will stop at nothing to accomplish his goal. The good news for us who know Christ, now if you don't know Jesus, you're eavesdropping today, and we hope you hear what will be the solution to your being a prisoner in this world under the, I would say, the dictatorship of the devil. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, it says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who may that be? Who is he who is in us? It's Jesus, correct? And who is he who is in the world? Well, it's the devil. And the devil specializes in trying to sabotage what Jesus is committed to doing, and that's to save people from their sins. You may recall Jesus saying in the book of Matthew, he says, when the gospel has been preached to every nation... 
the end will come. The word nation does not mean nations as we think about them. Rather, it means every linguistic group in the world. When every linguistic group will have had the opportunity to hear the gospel, then the end will come. Obviously, that has not yet happened. Paul gives us some cue as to what this is about in the book of Romans. In Romans 16, 20, he makes this statement, speaking to the people at Rome in his day who knew Jesus. And it would be just as applicable to us today in El Paso who know Jesus. Listen to what it says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How will he crush Satan under our feet? He is the God of peace. And if we put on the sandals or the boots or the shoes of the gospel of peace, we will crush him. This is why Satan does not want us to talk to other people about Christ. Because he knows as long as he can stave off the end, and the end will come when the last person that Christ has earmarked to be one of his sheep, when that last person gives himself, himself or herself to Christ, then Satan knows what his destiny is. He's going to be thrown into the pit for a thousand years. He's going to be bound up, and then he will be there for a millennium. That's another sermon or series of sermons in and of itself. But I wanted you to see why the devil is so intent upon keeping us from sharing Christ. And one of the ways he sabotages that is he gets us off track. He gets us to take the bait in the form of temptation that he makes to us. The devil can't make you sin. Do you know that? Unless you're not a follower of Christ. He has persuasive powers beyond your understanding if you don't know Christ to influence you in that regard. But even we who know Christ still have the capacity to sin. Fortunately, and that's not a good word because that speaks of luck, there's no such thing as luck. In the sovereignty of God, He has saved us. And if we're in Christ, the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good to know? There's no punishment. Why? Because Jesus himself was punished voluntarily for our sin. It is true that we live in a world filled with temptation. We understand this whole matter of this being a part of our existence, even as believers, to be tempted to sin when we realize who the tempter is. Obviously, Satan, who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Satan. Satan is a stubborn foe. He read the Bible. He knew that he was fighting against someone who was more powerful than he, but he didn't give up. He kept coming at Jesus, coming at Jesus. And Satan, by the way, has a very well-designed system that helps him in this process of getting us to fall into sin. It's called the world. 
When the Bible speaks of the world, it does not speak of the universe, the physical world. Rather, it speaks of a system that is very well organized. The Bible talks about our battle. We're in a battle for the ages. And the Bible speaks about it in this way. At the forefront, this is what the Word of God says. It says, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. We are foolish as believers if we think we can take on the devil in our own strength, that we can use our own ingenuity to ward off the devil and even to crush him under our feet. To the contrary, we must be people who rely simply and solely upon the Lord our God. And if we do that, we will be equipped to be a part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. We will not fall into temptation as frequently as we may do now. As we go forward, we will go forward in victory. But Satan will tempt us in one of the three, if not all three, of the categories of his system called the world. The Bible talks about this in 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the eyes. What that alludes to is things I see in the world, material things that I want. I want that car. I want that suit. I want that house. I want this, that, or the other. It's the material challenges we have. Materialism, remember what Jesus said about material things? He said, you cannot serve both God and the modern translations say money. Some of the modern translations hold to the original word mammon. Mammon was the god of materialism. And so we must guard against this when it becomes something that seeks to replace God in place number one. The Bible says, if you do not work, you do not eat. We work so that we can have a means whereby we can eat, we can have clothing, we can have shelter over our head, but we fall so easily into the trap. Paul even speaks of this when he's writing Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, be careful, don't fall into that trap. Many men wanting to become rich have really inflicted wounds upon themselves. And he's talking about believers, people who know Christ. So it's possible for you or me, even as followers of Jesus, that we can fall into that trap of wanting things more than we want the Lord. The lust of the eyes. Anybody here besides me ever dealt with that? The lust of the flesh. We typically associate that with sexual sin. And that certainly is part of it. But let me give you a little different take on this, maybe a fuller understanding of it for some of you. The lust of the flesh is my desiring something that is a natural God-given drive that is designed for the devil, the temptation is, for me to express that drive outside the context or the confines, the perimeter or the parameter of what God has established. Let's take food for an instance. 
I've already thought about food this morning. In fact, I ate some this morning. I felt better after I ate it. I haven't thought as much about it until I just mentioned it. And my stomach agreed wholeheartedly. We're given a God-given natural drive to eat. Why do we eat? Paul raises this question, do you eat to live or live to eat? We eat to live, don't we? We have to have food. But if we live to eat, we elevate food above the natural God-given reason for it. And sometimes we get outside and we get into the flesh and the consumption of food. What about sex? Who figured that out? Who planned it? God planned it. He looked and he said, let us make man in our own image, male and female. Prior to that, he looked at all the creation and he said, when he looked at Adam and the rest of his creation, he had said up until that point, everything I have made is good. And we use the word good too lightly. Good means perfect in that perspective. And then he said, but there's one thing that's not good. That is that man, Adam, is alone. It's not good for Adam to be alone. So he created a woman out of the rib of Adam so that they could be companions. Loneliness was abated, wasn't it? Was solved by God when he created a companion in the form of Eve. And they had companionship. They enjoyed each other's company. They became one in their sexual relationship. God gave them children, and God had told them, be fruitful and multiply one man, one woman, God's design. Not a woman and a woman and a man and a man, but one man and one woman. It's God's idea. So God wants you to enjoy your sexuality within the context of his design, in the context of marriage, for the purpose of procreation and also for the purpose of companionship. Aren't you glad God created us male and female? Praise the Lord for that. And the joys that come in the context of marriage as a result of that are phenomenal. But we still sometimes give in to the lust of the flesh in one or more areas, remembering what that would be, violating the God-given natural drive exercised within the context that he has established for that. Then there's the boastful pride of life. This is the one that I have struggled with the most, and I always hesitate to say that, not because I'm afraid of exposing my own weakness, the devil knows that already, or you may not even care what I struggle with, and that's okay. It doesn't do me any harm for that to be the truth. But I hesitate because sometimes I think, well, it's not like I'm not vulnerable in the other two either. We all have vulnerability, and the devil pulls out the stops to do us in. He did it with Jesus, didn't he? Turn these stones into bread. Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He was hungry. And he was vulnerable in that area. But the Lord says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. Then 
he was taken to the pinnacle. What was the pinnacle of the temple? It was the highest point. Archaeologists tell us it was 90 feet high. And he said, just throw yourself down. And he quoted, the devil is good at quoting the Bible, by the way. He quotes from the psalm, and he says, what's going to happen is the Lord will send angels, and they're going to save you. You're not going to splat. You're going to kind of maybe even levitate down and be saved. And people are going to think, wow, that is awesome. Well, that's probably the, the boastful pride of life when people say, man, he is something else. And this is the problem we have with the pride of life. We want people to look at us. We want people to think we're awesome. And this can be a problem, to say the least. Is, isn't it true? Christ is to be the center of our lives. We have our greatest pleasure as we've been singing today unto the Lord and been thinking about the pleasures of being a child of God as we've been led so wonderfully by our worship team in music to teach us these things as we've sung them together. The presence of the Lord, it's awesome to be in the presence of God. Is there anything better? No, there's absolutely nothing better than to be with God's people in His presence as we worship Him. And we know what he says is true, that wherever two or three have gathered together in my name, there I will be also. For all of Satan's expertise and incredible success in tempting us to sin, he, can't not, he cannot make us sin. James 1 says this, in effect. He says, the thing that leads me astray, the devil puts a bait out there. It's like going fishing. We talk about Jesus making us fisher of people, and that's right. Matthew 4.19 said to Peter and James and John, Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They were fishermen by trade. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You know the devil is a fisherman too? And he baits his hook with something that's very, very enticing. And what he appeals to is what the Bible calls my flesh. My flesh is not that which covers my skeletal system. My flesh is that which is always in opposition to God. And what happens when Christ saves you or me, He comes to indwell us, but He doesn't eradicate the flesh. There's a war which wages even in the lives of Christians who love the Lord. Paul speaks of it in his own life, by his own testimony in Romans 7. Read about it. And then in Galatians 5, 17, he makes this very terse yet jam-packed statement about it, that the Spirit of God wars against the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the flesh war against the Spirit of God. And the things we don't want to do, Paul says, we do. And the things that we do want to do, we can't. Why? Because we give in to our own selfishness. That's what the flesh is. My wanting my way, you're wanting your way. Whether it has to do with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. So, this triumvirate of enemies, Satan leading the charge, his world system, by the way, one-third of the angels who originally comprised all the angelic host. We don't know how many that would be, but I would say in the 
millions probably. One-third followed Satan, who was known as Lucifer then. Many scholars believe he was the highest of the archangels. But he was not satisfied with that place. He was the angel of light. And he led this rebellion. He should have known better, but he didn't. And he was defeated. He and his angels were kicked out of heaven, and we know them as demons. And this arrangement has been that which has been a bugaboo for us who live in this life, but we're going to be overcomers. That's what I'm aiming to help us to recommit to that. God can't cannot tempt us in James, we're told, because he can't be tempted by evil. God is God, and he's holy, holy, holy. We sang the doxology which emphasizes that. Because we live in a world of temptation, we live in a world of sin. Isn't this world chaotic? I have seen the effects that this era in history has had inflicted on it by the devil. It's unbelievable. Wars, hate, division, lies, liaisons. It takes me back to the 1960s when I was a teenager. And there were a lot of things going on then. If the 60s had occurred before this time, they would have been worse than this time. The reason I say that is because there was very little media in that time. Now we're just bombarded with it all the time, aren't we? Bombarded, bombarded, bombarded with all these negative images and statements. But in that day and time, as I was thinking about this early this morning, actually, I have had this sermon ready for a while, but I was going over it again, and this song came to my mind, at least the chorus that's repeated throughout it. It was written and sung by the Youngbloods in 1967, and it was entitled, Get Together. Come on, people now. I want to sing, but I'm going to back off. <laughs> Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. That's 54 years ago. How have we done? How are we doing? The world does not have the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus says... A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. We got to start loving each other, brothers and sisters, in more than just word, but in deed. Until we do that, there will be no repairing of this world. We must do that. We also had, have to heed what Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, Lord, you've gone to meddling now, telling me to love my enemies. We're to love our enemies. That's what the Bible says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. A lot of persecution going on in the world. We know very little about it in this country, but we will know more about it in the days to come if Jesus doesn't bring a great revival. And I hope he does. He can begin with me and you. We cannot avoid temptation. Notice what it says in verse 13. When you are tempted... Martin Luther used to say this, I cannot keep the birds from flying over my head, 
but I can keep them from building a nest in my hair. He was contrasting temptation. Remember, who is the ruler of this world? Satan. But we can let them roost in our hair. And the result of that is we take the bait. The lure is set before us and we take the bait. I'm talking about believers now. The temptation that is spoken of is obviously universal. When the scripture says no temptation has seized you, that's a strong word, seized you that is not common to man. We're all subject to temptation and we have all sinned, probably all of us, in one of these three areas, remembering that Jesus really gets to down to the nitty-gritty about sin when he talks about how it's a matter of the heart. I can sin in my heart. I can lust in my heart after a woman who's not my wife. I can lust in my heart, and that is the equivalent of committing adultery. I can get mad at a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ or somebody that I hardly know. I can get all angry at them. And what is that? That's murder. It's murder. Just like in my heart I lust after a woman. When I get mad at someone, I have committed murder. This form that this temptation comes in Idolatry, this text teaches about it. Uh, undoubtedly, Paul was thinking about Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, when the people got Aaron to build them a golden calf because Moses had been up on the mountain communing with God for a while, and they talked him into it. It didn't take much. He built them that, and then they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. In other words, the word play, that's too mild a word, they had an orgy. So here they were giving in to immorality. In Numbers 25, 1 through 3, we see another instance of that. And the Lord does not take kindly to idolatry at all. Because what is it? Idolatry is when I elevate anything in my life, a relationship, a thing, a hobby, money. When I relate, raise anything to a place higher than the Lord God, than what is true of me. I have become an idolater. Ingratitude as well. The people were not happy with what they had to eat every day. They had this manna, and it was flaky, kind of tastes like honey. They'd never seen it before. In fact, the name which we read that they gave it, manna, it means, what is it? They didn't know. But they had it every day and they were complaining. We've had this every day. We want some meat. What did God do? He sent thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of quail, and they just lit right there. They didn't have guns to shoot quail with. They, they were so many, they could just grab them and kill them and eat them. Not raw, probably. They cooked them. But have you ever eaten quail? It is delicious, by the way. Awesome. It was a delicacy for them, too. But they got tired of that. They were ungrateful. They grumbled. How frequently do you and I grumble? We who know Christ, we complain. We complain about our husband. We complain about our wife. We complain about our bosses. We complain that we don't have enough money. We complain about this, that, or the other. Look, 
Do everything without grumbling, the Bible says. Do everything without complaining. What is that indicative of? That is an indicator that I do not believe what God says in His Word. In Hebrews, for instance, there are other places when He says, be content with what you have. Who do you have? If you know Jesus, you have everything. Now, I don't for a minute think that means I just sit down and do nothing. No, not, it's not like that. But Christ is in me. And wherever I go, He's with me. Do you love Him more than anyone else in this world? Do I love Him more than any possession I have? Do we say, I cannot give this up because I've just got to have it, whatever form it may take? Well, we're ungrateful. I think this ticks God off probably worse than anything else. Ingratitude. We could look at more, but we're going to run out of time. Temptation, the word itself, discovers what we are. This was Thomas Akempis. Some of you are familiar with his epic work from the Middle Ages, The Imitation of Christ. Temptation discovers what we are. That's what the devil wants to do with it. But God wants to use that temptation in our lives because He wants to make us stop and think to see, are we really walking with the Lord or are we committed to be under His Lordship and we love Him more than anything else? As I've thought over the years about the whole matter of temptation and trial, what I've discovered long ago is that the word that's used here for temptation and the word that's used, for instance, in James 1, when it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, the same word in the language of the New Testament. And the primary significance of that word, most scholars are agreed, is that the main idea is trial. And that's led me to ask the question, is every temptation a trial? And is every trial a temptation? And what I've concluded, and I'm no genius, obviously, you probably already figured it out before me. Every temptation is a trial. It's a trial as to whether I'm going to obey the Lord. And every trial is a temptation. It's a trial as to whether I'm going to trust the Lord, that He does cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We can't avoid temptation. Here's the good news, though. We can overcome it, can't we? And where does that overcoming power come from? God is faithful. That's what this text says. That is awesome. God is faithful. Even though we become faithless, He cannot deny Himself by being unfaithful to us. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. We have this wonderful hymn that captures the idea. It's right out of the book of Lamentations. Many places in the Bible, the Bible talks about the faithfulness of God. If for one nanosecond God would not be faithful, the whole universe would be under the control of the evil one. He's faithful in His presence. 
He's faithful in His guidance, in His protection, in His provision, in His deliverance. We see this in the Exodus, in the deliverance through the Red Sea. We see this with the cloud that would give shade from the heaviness of the heat of the Sinai Desert. And in the nighttime, it would warm up. You know, the swing in, in temperatures, sometimes it can be 105 or 10 degrees in the Sinai, and in the night it can get down into the freezing range. Such a wide spectrum. But they were always warm, and they are always shielded from the heat beating down upon them. God does all this. We've even talked about the manna. Let me speak about it one more time. Have you ever thought about the word provision? The origin of that word? It's pro-vision. And pro means before. And vision, we know, before there's a vision, God has already made provision for us. He looks ahead. He lives in the future as well as the present. He's omnipresent. So He knows what we need before we need it. He's omniscient, but He's also omnipotent. So He can bring this mysterious food, manna, create it just for the Israelites. And He can send hundreds of thousands of quail in for food to eat in the way of meat. Wow. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. He's also faithful to discipline us. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, is what Jesus says. And He imitates His Father in that. God will provide a way out. Isn't this good news? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. If you're saying, Lord, I just can't get out of this, I just can't get out of this, look, trust the Lord. Give your life to the Lord. You may not know Him yet if you can't get out of it. I doubt that in many of your lives when you're hooked into this cycle of behavior that is sinful, there's a way out. You just have to know it. You know how to engage the Lord in it and find His strength in it. Remembering we're to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, not our own. We're to pray. When Jesus was at his point of greatest extremity in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was talking to Peter, James, and John, his closest of the apostles. He said, watch and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. So prayer is a hedge against falling into temptation that will result in sin in our lives. Prayer. We have someone who helps us with our praying, though, don't we? We heard about him two weeks ago, John 16, 24. Until now, Jesus says, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made full. I have to ask in Jesus' name. What that means is I ask according to his character and according to his will. And what happens, he will answer that prayer he's bound to. This is the confidence we have before God that if we ask anything according to His will, God hears us. And if we know that God hears us in whatever we ask, we know what we have, what we've asked from God. We have this capacity. This is one of the means whereby the Lord gives us an out. We do not have a high priest 
who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested and tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. Who is he? Jesus. And so the next verse says there in Hebrews 4, then let us come with confidence, boldness before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace just in the nick of time. Some of you are on the edge of cratering. The nick of time is here for you today to come to the floor of the Lord and trust Him in a deeper way to answer you. And then Scripture. When Christ was tempted by the devil, He responded to each temptation in a similar way. He said, it is written. What was He talking about? It's the Word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This man had not eaten in 40 days, and he was able to do that. The other two quotations also come from the same book in the Bible, Deuteronomy. So Jesus was either meditating on that section. It's in the same section, chapter 6 through 8, in that same chapter. He was meditating on God's Word day and night so that he might be careful to do everything written in it. Then he would be prosperous and successful. Therein lies the key. We can't dabble around with God's Word. And you might say, well, Mike, you're a preacher. You don't do anything anyway except study the Bible and maybe talk about it a little bit. Look, I'm just as subject to trying another path as you are in this life. I could say, well, I know the Bible. I've read it a lot. I've read it a whole lot of times. I can quote a lot of Scripture. I still need to be in the Word. Jesus was in the Word. And we know from the Bible that faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The Word of God. And we're to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. We are to trust what God has given us about Himself, the promises which He's made us, the commands which He has given us. And you don't know all of them, nor do I. You don't have to get all uptight and say, I don't know the Bible. It's no, there's no way I can spend the kind of time you do, Mike, reading the Bible. Do you know if you spent 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes, think about all the 30-minute segments of your day. On your phone, looking up stuff up that means virtually nothing, just like I do sometimes. How the Cardinals doing? Well, they're out of the playoffs already. <laughs> Will the Cowboys win this afternoon? I don't know. I'm going to watch part of it, God willing. All those things that amount to very little, if anything, in the long run. But we have the Word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We have the Word of God, every word of which will last forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will never pass away. It's ours for the taking. And the Lord wants us to be men and women who are women who use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the shield of faith, realizing that they're interrelated because it's through the Word that we have the power to defeat the devil. The Bible says in James 4, Submit yourselves therefore to God. What does that mean? Humble yourself before God. 
claim, is it, claim Jesus as your king, not just your buddy, but your king. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of us want to quote that one, but we don't quote what comes before it. Submit first, make him Lord in your heart, and then after we resist him, we draw near to God and he will draw near to us. That's not just formulaic. It's fantastic. It's true. We have to know it, to believe it, and to apply it. First John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever is born of God cannot be defeated. It is to be overcoming. God wants us to be overcomers in our temptations and our trials. Two sides of the same coin. Finish with this quotation. Peter Marshall, former chaplain of the United States Senate in the 1940s, he says, it's no sin to be tempted. It isn't the fact of having temptations that should call us, cause us shame, but what we do with those temptations. Temptation is an opportunity to conquer. When we eventually reach the goal to which we are all striving, we are not going to find God looking us over for our achievement, but for our scars. We're going to battle. It's a battle for the ages. You want to win? I do, and I think you do too. The key is our submitting to a God who is a faithful God without any strings attached on our end and say, Lord, whatever you want, I will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this teaching from your word on the matter of temptation and how to overcome it. We want to be individually overcomers, but we want a church that we can participate in by contributing our submission to you and mixing it with other submission so that you'll be glorified in this church as you are glorified in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. God bless.